Welcome to How Stories Work with Jay Shear. Today we are talking about the story of Jonah. It also is available in video format. So if you go to the YouTube channel, youtube.com slash the Reclamation Society, you can also watch the video version of this. The video version isn't a lot different, but I do include the actual passages that we'll be discussing from the story of Jonah. I display them on the screen. So if you wanted to see that, you could definitely check it out on the YouTube channel. But I also wanted to let you know about a few other things that I put together to go alongside this podcast and that video. Because the story of Jonah is part of a larger narrative universe, so hear me talk about this, it has implications across that narrative universe, which in this case is the Bible. I actually take the story of Jonah and compare it to the story of Jesus because Jesus actually references the book of Jonah. In that particular video, I talk about why the two stories are related, how they're related, and why that's mind-blowing to me personally. That is available for free on Patreon. You do not have to be a Patreon supporter to access that video, so I highly recommend that you check that out. I also have a study guide, Patreon supporters uh, at $9.99 a month or higher. Uh, actually receive the study guide for free, but you can also purchase it for $4.99. Or if you really can't afford it right now, but you really want to get access to it, just reach out to me and let me know because I don't want you to miss out on that study guide. Most of that stuff you can be you can find at patreon.com slash work. I'll leave links to all of these things down in the show notes. And I hope you enjoy the story of Jonah. It is a stunning critique of modern day humanity. Let me know if you have any questions or if you want access to the study guide or any of the other videos that I'm preparing, reach out, let me know, or become a Patreon supporter. And a lot of that stuff you just automatically will get in your inbox, which is fantastic. I hope you enjoy the story of Jonah and my extensive breakdown of it. The story of Jonah from the Bible is not about a man who gets swallowed by a whale. Some of us heard it explained that way in Sunday school, and then others have heard very different versions, like the version of Jonah from the Joe Rogan Experience podcast. But the story of Jonah has a deeper and far more important message that resonates with many of us in the modern day. And that message is delivered through an engaging narrative that feels like an episode of Game of Thrones a fugitive prophet, an evil city, a sea monster sent by God, and an ending that forces the audience to ask themselves a deep introspective question. How does the story of Jonah work and why is it still shockingly relevant to us today? This is How Stories Work with Jay Shear, and on today's show, I'll explain the story of Jonah. Also, if you enjoyed this video and want to dig even deeper into the story of Jonah, I created a study guide to go along with this show. It's easy to use for self-study or in a writing group or even a small group. If you're interested, the link is in the description. Let's start with the question that most people ask about the story of Jonah. Did it really happen? Is the story of Jonah a historical account or is it a parable? My definitive answer is it doesn't matter. If it actually happened, if this is real life history, then it's an important story with an important message. But if it's a parable, it's an important story with an important message. Now, many evangelical and Catholic churches explain the story of Jonah as if it actually happened. But others, including many Jewish scholars, contend that the story of Jonah is a parable. And here's the thing, it doesn't matter. The important part of the story of Jonah is not about him surviving for three days inside a whale, which by the way, 
might be better translated as large sea creature or my personal favorite, sea monster. Fixating on whether or not the story of Jonah really happened means sacrificing a far more important conversation about the nature of God, how human beings should interact with one another, and defining justice and mercy. Whether or not the story of Jonah is a historical account or a parable has no impact on the truth we can extract from the story. Jesus himself told parables that contain truth. And many spiritual books of all kinds from other faiths use parables to illustrate and explain core truths about our shared human experience and our relationship with the divine. So let's put aside the argument about whether or not the story of Jonah is historically accurate and dive into the more important aspects of what the storyteller is attempting to convey. Act one, the setup, is short and sweet. It's just three verses. That's likely because the story is a small piece of a much more expansive narrative. In other words, the book of Jonah can stand alone, but it's intended to be understood as part of a larger narrative universe. In this case, the Old Testament and or the Tanakh. It's similar to the Marvel Cinematic Universe or the MCU. Captain America Winter Soldier can stand alone, but it helps to have the greater context of all the other MCU films in order to understand and enjoy how it fits into the bigger picture. Part of the reason people tend to miss some of the deeper messages in Jonah is because they aren't familiar with the wider biblical context or they don't factor it into the equation. Now the story begins with God giving Jonah a directive, basically a quest. He instructs Jonah to go to Nineveh. God refers to Nineveh as a great city, probably because it's both large and influential. God wants Jonah to cry out against Nineveh because their wickedness has come up before me. In other words, Nineveh has become so evil that God feels the need to intervene. Jonah will serve as God's messenger and his objective will be to let the people of Nineveh know that God has seen their wickedness. Now, based on this simple setup, we now know, one, Jonah has received a directive, I like calling it a quest, from God. Two, the people of Nineveh, a large and influential city, are participating in behaviors that God considers evil or wicked. And three, God has asked Jonah to cry out against them. Then in verse three, we hit plot point one. That is an inflection point that takes the story in a new direction. Instead of embarking on his quest, Jonah attempts to flee from the presence of the Lord. He boards a ship for Tarshish rather than heading to Nineveh. God gives Jonah a directive and Jonah immediately bails. That's act one, a brief setup for the story of Jonah. That leads to act two, which starts with Jonah fleeing the presence of God. But as an audience, we don't know why, not yet. That's still coming. But in the meantime, this first half of act two ramps up the conflict right away. Jonah's headed for Tarshish, fleeing the presence of God, when God sends a violent storm that threatens to sink the ship that he's on. The storm is so severe that the sailors are afraid for their lives. Meanwhile, Jonah is fast asleep below decks, a detail I find fascinating because it's a subtle clue and amazing foreshadowing about Jonah's mindset. In most stories, fugitives don't sleep well, but here Jonah is fast asleep in the middle of a raging storm. The sailors, who are terrified the ship will sink, have to wake Jonah up. In other words, Jonah doesn't seem to have a guilty conscience at all. Despite fleeing from the presence of God and being beset by a violent storm, He's sleeping like a baby. When the sailors wake Jonah up, the captain tells him to pray to his God. They're all praying to their own gods. They might as well have Jonah pray too. Maybe one of the gods will choose to save them. If not, given the severity of this storm, they're all going to die. The sailors have an interesting theory, one we still encounter in modern times. They blame their misfortune on someone's behavior. 
Somebody must have done something to make the gods angry, and in turn, the gods sent the storm to punish that person. To figure out who the gods are angry at, they cast lots, which essentially is like drawing straws or rolling dice, to see who on the boat has caused the storm. The assumption being that the gods will reveal who the problematic person is. And it works! The casting of lots identifies Jonah as the source of the problem, which of course we already know to be true. God sent the storm because Jonah fled. The sailors then begin to pepper Jonah with questions about where he's from, who his God is, and what he did to upset his God. Jonah explains who he is and then says, I fear the Lord, the God of heaven. Doesn't that seem like an odd thing for Jonah to say? Everyone around Jonah is terrified, but he just woke up from an unperturbed deep sleep. And yet he claims that he fears God. Keep in mind, at this point, we still don't know why Jonah is fleeing from the presence of God, but does it make sense to disobey a deity that you fear? Someone who truly feared God above all else would do whatever God wanted them to do, right? The story will circle back to this later, and I bring it up because it's another example of subtle foreshadowing that works phenomenally well in giving us some insight into Jonah's character and his motivation. As you read through the story of Jonah, it's worth noting the minor details that the storyteller chooses to include or exclude. All the clues the storyteller leaves for us help us better understand Jonah's character while extraneous details are left out. The storm continues to get worse. The sailors ask Jonah what they should do to appease God and Jonah tells them to throw him overboard. At first they don't want to. They try to head to shore instead, but they can't make it. The storm is too intense for them to fight it and before long their ship will sink. So the sailors finally cry out to God for mercy and then proceed to throw Jonah into the sea as he suggested. Right after Jonah gets tossed in, the storm stops. The storyteller notes here that the sailors feared the Lord exceedingly, offered sacrifices to him, and took vows. I would assume vows to make Jonah's God their own God. This set of scenes showcases compelling conflict. A prophet of God flees from his presence. A storm arises that terrifies a group of seasoned sailors and threatens to sink their ship and take their lives. They nervously cast lots to see whose behavior has caused the storm, and when they find out it's Jonah, they reluctantly throw him overboard. It's a fantastic start to the story of Jonah, and the conflict in the first half of Act 2 really draws the audience in and makes us want to see what happens next. Plus, the storyteller has already hinted at more conflict to come. At the midpoint of the story of Jonah, we've learned a little bit more about what's happening. Jonah claims to fear God, but is openly disobedient to him. He seems to have a pretty clear conscience. In other words, it seems like he feels justified in fleeing from God. And finally, the storyteller has also, utilizing the conflict, contrasted Jonah's attitude with that of the sailors who demonstrate a more acute fear of God. And while they initially attempt to row to shore, they quickly come around to throwing Jonah overboard in obedience to God. Now, cue the sea monster. The first half of Act 2 ends in verse 16. And the second half of Act 2 begins when the sailors throw Jonah overboard. That's where we hit the classic scene everybody knows. A giant sea monster swallows Jonah whole. Note that it doesn't say whale. And when Jesus refers to Jonah in the Gospel of Matthew, again, given the narrative universe, this is like the TV show Hawkeye referencing the events of Avengers Endgame. But the word that Jesus uses, which is translated from Greek rather than Hebrew, doesn't necessarily mean whale either. The actual words referenced in both stories, translated from Hebrew or Greek, 
are more accurately translated to great sea creature or even sea monster. The reason I bring this up is that suggesting that the fish or the sea monster is a whale seems to be an attempt to make this element of the story more believable. It's almost as if someone has already determined that the story must be historically accurate in order for it to be meaningful. And since calling it a sea monster or even a great sea creature might make it seem less realistic, some interpreters replace that descriptor with one that seems more realistic to them. Since we're breaking down Jonah as a story without attempting to determine whether or not it actually happened, I have to come to two conclusions about altering the narrative in this way. One, changing the term from sea monster to whale doesn't improve the story. In fact, I'm willing to bet that many modern day readers would be far more interested in a story that had a sea monster in it rather than a whale. Two, the story of Jonah isn't even about the sea monster, which means attempting to alter the storyteller's original description might distract from the narrative arc and therefore the entire meaning of the story. In other words, Sanitizing the content here doesn't help. Now, I do understand why so many people focus on this aspect of the story. It's definitely a strong marketing tool. There's not another story in the Bible about a sea monster, which makes it instantly memorable. In fact, if Hollywood made a film about the story of Jonah, this scene would be on the poster, a giant sea monster swallowing Jonah whole. It'd be a pretty rad poster, honestly. A massive creature from the depths of the ocean swallows a fugitive prophet of God. Jonah, starring Leonardo DiCaprio. This summer, stay out of the water. As a fan of fantasy, I find the addition of the sea monster compelling. But the story of Jonah isn't about the sea monster. In fact, there are only three verses that mention the creature. Here's everything that's said about the sea monster. One, it swallows Jonah. Two, Jonah is in its belly for three days and three nights. And three, Jonah prays to the Lord from the sea monster's belly and then it vomits him up onto the shore. The only description of the sea monster is that it's great, which likely means large, just like with the city of Nineveh. That's it, we don't get any other details. Why? Because that's not where the storyteller wants us to spend our time and attention. So, while Jonah is inside the sea monster, he prays to God, which is where the conflict of Act 2 really shines. Act 2 is more about Jonah's internal conflict than anything else. You can read the entire prayer, but here are some things that we can ascertain from it. One, Jonah seems to be confident that God will hear and answer his prayer because he starts the prayer by praising God for hearing and answering his prayer. Two, Jonah is miserable inside the sea monster. It's not a penthouse suite, it's bad. He uses intense metaphors to describe his discomfort and even references Sheol to suggest that being inside the sea monster is like being in hell. And three, Jonah says something very interesting at the tail end of his prayer. He prays, those who regard worthless idols forsake their own mercy. Doesn't that seem like a strange thing to say for a guy stuck in the belly of a sea monster? Remember that because it tells us something very important about Jonah in this moment. It's another bit of subtle foreshadowing that's easy to miss. The prayer reveals and explains a lot about Jonah's character. He seems to understand how God works, and he loves the Lord and wants to follow him, but he's still holding on to some baggage that will be revealed in Act 3, including why he fled from God in the first place. Act 2 ends with the sea monster vomiting Jonah up onto the dry ground, and then, some unspecified time later, God tells Jonah to go back to Nineveh to deliver a message to the Ninevite people. 
Jonah gets a second chance to complete his original quest. By the way, if you think about the story of Jonah as one story within a larger narrative universe, as I've suggested, there are parallels and references to later installments. My favorite follows the similarities and critically important differences between the story of Jonah and the accounts of the Gospels that cover the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Check out my after show on my Patreon account to learn more about that. The link is down in the description. For now, let's get back into Act 3, where we finally begin to understand why Jonah fled from God. Act 3 takes the story straight to Nineveh. God calls Jonah to Nineveh again, and this time Jonah actually goes. It notes here that it takes three days to traverse throughout Nineveh. So Nineveh is huge. And this time around, Jonah completes his quest by walking through the city of Nineveh, crying out, in 40 days, Nineveh will be overthrown. And the people listen. They believe Jonah. When word reaches the king, he tells the entire city that everyone in Nineveh needs to repent. And they do. Collectively, as a city, they all acknowledge and turn away from their wickedness. Some audience members might balk at such a rapid turn in the hearts of the Ninevite people, but I recently watched several episodes of the Vice series Black Market, which showcases illegal activities in major cities in today's world. And part of the philosophy of that show, which it documents extraordinarily well, by the way, is that most of the people involved in this illegal activity know it's wrong and don't want to be a part of it, but they're desperate. I imagine that the people of Nineveh felt the same way. They knew their city was evil and that they're partially at fault, which is likely why repentance comes so easily for them. To give us an idea of how bad Nineveh has become, the storyteller documents that the king says, let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. There are a couple of implications here. One, everyone in Nineveh was truly evil, meaning that they were actually harming one another. And I note that because, based on other biblical narratives, a city has to get pretty bad before God issues a warning of this nature. The story of Jonah doesn't provide us with any details, but we can assume that given Nineveh's repentance, the king's own words, Jonah's reaction, which we'll see in a minute, and additional context from other stories that fall within this narrative universe of the Bible, the people of Nineveh are committing some serious crimes against one another. Two, according to the story, everyone in the city knew their city was evil and knew it was wrong. And so their collective response was to turn away from their violent, wicked ways. The people of Nineveh repent and God upholds his promise. He does not overthrow this city. In most modern movies, that would be the resolution. In a Hollywood blockbuster, this story would be about Jonah's fear. He would need to overcome his fear in order to do the right thing. But in the end, he would pursue the quest God gave him and head to the corrupt city of Nineveh. There he would find the courage to tell them to repent. And then, after a few chase scenes, probably, he would face off against their evil king. Overcome that king. And then the story would end with everyone repenting and living happily ever after. And if the actual story of Jonah, the one we find in the Bible, ended here, it could be about Jonah overcoming his fear and choosing to be selfless. Maybe Jonah didn't want to go to Nineveh because he was scared. But God proved to Jonah through the encounter with the sea monster that he would protect him. And Jonah finally found the courage to face off against evil, violent Nineveh. If the story ended here, then the popular narrative about God sustaining Jonah while he was in the whale might be justified. We'd have to assume some things. We're not told, but we could get there. But here's the thing. The story of Jonah is not over. And Jonah's problem is not that he was afraid. 
the story of Jonah is about to go to a far darker place. This resembles an independent film way more than it does a summer blockbuster. Let's pause here to recap. God has a quest for Jonah, but Jonah does not want to complete it. He flees from God, though the story does not explain why. Not yet. After God redirects Jonah by sending a storm and a sea monster to teach him a lesson, Jonah changes his mind and obeys God. Then Jonah goes to Nineveh, declares they need to repent from their evil ways, and then everyone is happy. Except that's not quite right. Not everyone is happy because after the people of Nineveh repent and declare they're going to change, Jonah is enraged. Didn't expect that, did you? Well, what's going on here? Let's look at Jonah's final prayer to God to examine some key details we need to fully understand this story. One, in his prayer, Jonah says that he told God he did not want to go to Nineveh, a detail the storyteller chose not to reveal until now. This means that God has always known why Jonah didn't want to go to Nineveh. Two, Jonah predicted the outcome of completing his quest before he ever embarked on it. He says, I know you are a gracious and merciful God, slow to anger and abundant in loving kindness, one who relents from doing harm. In other words, Jonah suspected God would show mercy to the people of Nineveh, which means he also likely knew that Nineveh would repent. Three, Jonah is so pissed off about the people of Nineveh receiving mercy that he prays, please take my life from me for it is better for me to die than to live. Why didn't Jonah go to Nineveh the first time? Why did he flee? Because he wanted God to overthrow Nineveh. He wanted Nineveh to be punished for their evil. He saw how disobedient the Ninevites were, how evil and violent they were, and he wanted them to pay for it, most likely with their lives, though I'm somewhat inferring that. This story is not a Hollywood blockbuster. Jonah didn't overcome his own fear. He wasn't afraid to preach to Nineveh. He just didn't want Nineveh to receive mercy. He wanted to see them punished. It's important to pause here to note that Jonah isn't wrong in wanting to see Nineveh's evil dealt with. Nineveh was evil. God agreed. God was going to have Nineveh overthrown for how evil they were. Even the Ninevites themselves thought their own behaviors were evil. But what happens next showcases why the story of Jonah is so important, something probably all of us can recognize as a shared human experience. Jonah is outraged that God has shown Nineveh mercy. He's so outraged that he doesn't want to live and see these people get off scot-free, so to speak. Overreaction? Maybe. But have you ever been so angry about an unresolved injustice that you could barely stand it? If not, perhaps you can at least imagine that feeling. But thankfully, God doesn't leave Jonah in that state, although he's not going to be easy on him. He asks Jonah a simple question. Is it right for you to be angry? This question should cut us all to the core. I'll explain why in a minute, but first God, and therefore the storyteller, is going to illustrate his point one more time in the story through another metaphor. Jonah leaves Nineveh and goes to a place where he can still see the city. Why would he do that? Personally, I think Jonah wants to see if his outrage might persuade God to change his mind. And if so, he can gleefully watch the city burn. It feels like Jonah still believes his way of thinking is superior to God's, and he's trying to convince God to change his mind. Well, God prepares a plant to grow up, 
obviously very quickly, to provide some shade for Jonah because he is completely miserable in the heat. And Jonah is grateful for the shade. He goes to sleep, and then as the morning dawns, God sends a worm to eat the plant, leaving Jonah totally exposed to the sun again. The heat beats down on Jonah. A strong wind comes up alongside the heat, and pretty soon Jonah's miserable yet again. He even says to God, It is better for me to die than to live. This is a common theme for him. He's pretty upset. God responds to him, Is it right for you to be angry about the plant? Jonah retorts, It is right for me to be angry, even to death. You had pity on the plant, God says, for which you have not labored nor made grow, which came up in a night and perished in a night. And should I not pity Nineveh, the great city, in which are more than 120,000 people who cannot discern their right hand from their left. Roll credits. That's the end. That's how the story of Jonah ends. Nineveh is saved while Jonah is still outraged at God and the Ninevite people. Not some pithy happy ending, but rather God questioning Jonah's heart. Feel a little bit puzzled? Hey, it's understandable. Let's break it all down to explain why I love this story so much and how powerful the story of Jonah truly is in explaining the human condition. So what is the story of Jonah all about? It's definitely not about him getting swallowed by a whale, right? The meaning of the story of Jonah revolves around God's simple but powerful question. Is it right for you to be angry? The story of Jonah is a character study. It delivers a gut punch that's meant to force us to pause and reflect on what just unfolded. We didn't get clear heroes and villains. We got nuance. But what does it all mean? What's the meaning of the story of Jonah? Using Leos Igri's thoughts on premise from his book, The Art of Dramatic Writing, I would suggest that the story of Jonah showcases that self-righteous indignation ignores its own hypocrisy to produce bitterness and outrage. In Act 1, Jonah flees from the presence of God so as to avoid God's directive. By the end of the story, we know why. Jonah doesn't want God to have mercy on Nineveh. He wants Nineveh to experience pain and suffering because of their evil deeds. Jonah actively disobeys God's command and wishes for death and destruction on a group of his fellow humans. In Act 2, Jonah changes his behavior but not his heart. Let's revisit that one telling line in his prayer again. In the belly of the sea monster, he prayed, those who regard worthless idols forsake their own mercy. Who was he talking about? My suspicion is that he's talking about the Ninevites. Jonah acknowledges that he disobeyed God by fleeing God's presence, but he still doesn't want God to forgive the people of Nineveh. In Jonah's mind, the people of Nineveh have forsaken their own mercy. According to him, they don't deserve God's mercy. In Act 3, Jonah obeys God, but he remains convinced Nineveh should be overthrown. So, when Nineveh repents and God spares them, Jonah becomes outraged. And God, seeing Jonah's outrage, asks him a simple question. Is it right for you to be angry? Does Jonah have a right to be outraged about Nineveh's evil behavior? Yes, even God was outraged by that. But Jonah isn't just outraged by Nineveh's evil. He's outraged at God for showing them mercy after they have acknowledged their own evil and chosen to turn away from it. Jonah wanted violence. Jonah wanted to withhold mercy. What did God want? Restored relationship. 
And here's the really important aspect of why Jonah is wrong and why God is right. Jonah isn't worthy of God's mercy either. Jonah disobeyed God. He never changed his heart. He wanted violence against Nineveh even after they repented. God's question is essentially him pointing out that Jonah's heart was as problematic as the behavior of the Ninevites. Jonah wanted God to obliterate them and fled from God in order that they wouldn't have a chance to repent. By abandoning his quest, Jonah likely thought that he was sentencing the unrepentant Ninevites to God's wrath. Nineveh wasn't worthy of God's mercy, but Jonah isn't worthy of God's mercy either. If we demand that God punishes evil, justice requires that he punishes us too. Fortunately, as the story of Jonah showcases, God wants a relationship with his creation and he wants us to refrain from evil. The story of Jonah demonstrates that while we desire justice and mercy, when we seek true justice, we often condemn ourselves. Jonah's outrage when God shows the people of Nineveh mercy makes him a hypocrite, and his desire for violence and a lack of compassion make him bitter and angry. The problem isn't that we desire justice, it's that we are quick to appoint ourselves judge over who should or shouldn't be brought to justice. Later in the Bible, in the book of Matthew, Jesus Christ says, Judge not that you be not judged. And why do you look at the speck in your brother's eye, but do not consider the plank in your own eye? Thus, the premise of the story of Jonah rings true centuries later. Self-righteous indignation ignores its own hypocrisy to produce bitterness and outrage. In the 80s and 90s, the moral majority sought justice by demanding clean content and condemning controversial ideas, all the while hating homosexuals. More recently, we've seen cancel culture movements that sought to do justice by demanding that human beings do better. And all the while, those deeply involved in those movements were committing terrible acts of their own. That, unfortunately, is often our own shared human experience. Whether we resemble the people of Nineveh or Jonah, we're not worthy of mercy. But according to the story of Jonah, God allows for repentance and grants mercy even when we don't deserve it. The story of Jonah is not mainly about a prophet who's protected by God after being swallowed by a whale. Instead, it's a deeply personal exploration of justice, mercy, and our own deep-seated issues with hypocrisy, bitterness, and outrage. And for those reasons, I love the story of Jonah and consider it a masterpiece of storytelling. Two final things. If you want to dig even deeper into the story of Jonah, either for a self-study or a study with a writer's group or a small group, check out my study guide. And don't forget to check out my after-show content where I break down the similarities and differences between the story of Jonah and the story of Jesus Christ as it's laid out in the Gospels. It's a little bit mind-blowing, and all of that is available over on Patreon. Links to the after-show video and the study guide are in the description down below. Let me know your thoughts on the story of Jonah in the comments. Did I miss anything in explaining the story of Jonah? Do you agree that the story of Jonah is awesome? I'd love to hear your thoughts. Thanks for watching, and I'll see you on the next video. Thanks for listening to that video slash podcast. Again, just a couple reminders. 
If you want the connective tissue piece about the story of Jonah and the story of Jesus, then that is available at patreon.com slash howstorieswork. It's available for free. You do not have to support me on Patreon to get access to that video. If you do head over to Patreon, I'd appreciate you supporting me. There are several different tiers that you can sign up for, and each of those tiers receives different benefits. One of the benefits of signing up for the $9.99 a month tier is that you get access to the study guide. And the study guide for the book of Jonah Basically, it's something I put together because as I, again, was studying the story of Jonah, I was gaining a lot of valuable insights about how that story works and how it can apply to our modern day lives. Things that still matter to us today. I also have a few questions in there specific to storytellers. Definitely check those out. If you have another story that you want me to break down like I broke down the story of Jonah, I would love to do that. So if you have another story that you really love, you've been wrestling with, you've been thinking about, it's been on your mind, let me know because a lot of other people might have that same shared experience and I would like to have that same shared experience of breaking that down and learning more from what the storyteller had to say. Thanks again and I will catch you on the next podcast.